kind of kind of feel a bit like Tom Cruise at the moment. <laughs> I know. But in his mission impossible state. Because it feels like I've been given an impossible mission to try and cover God's character and attributes in the short space of sermon. Uh, but it's a mission I accept for some reason. <laughs> because only it, it takes a lifetime. It takes your, your Christian walk to fully appreciate comprehend and know God's character and his attributes so first of all first question what is his characters and attributes what do I actually mean by that well here's a relatively short list not comprehensive just a short list I didn't talk about his holiness love mercy grace peace justice wrath chastisement all-knowing which is omniscience omniscience all-powerful omnipotence or all presence is omnipresence uh, they are just to name a few of his characters and his attributes and we'll be largely covering pretty much all of those over this course of a sermon so as i said you, we kind of learn these through our christian walk and you see examples of this in scripture um where people kind of experience god one of his characters and attributes in their life and they look back and they say wow that was god working in that part of me and uh but you see as well that's how some of the names of god have been given through those times example this is abraham abraham in genesis 17 verse 1 to 3 abraham uh sees god's provision love grace and only uh all powerfulness is omnipotence when god reconfirms his covenant with abraham and that's where Abraham calls God Al Shaddai, which means almighty or all-sufficient one. Another example is Hagar in Genesis 16, where Hagar fled um, when Sarah was treating her harshly. And an angel of the Lord spoke to her, gave her some great promises regarding Ishmael, her son. And she called it the place Al Roy, which is God sees. God uh, was speaking, uh, speaking of God's like, omnipresence being everywhere he sees everything his mercy and love compassion for isaac essentially a, a child born um who wasn't the promised chosen child but yet god gave his mercy and love compassion upon ishmael especially considering who comes out of ishmael um another example moses in exodus chapter 17 uh, verse 8 16 specifically chapter uh, verse 15 moses and israel are fighting the Am amalekes and they have a great victory. Um, Moses gave God the glory and also gave the name Jehovah Nissi. God is my banner. So seeing God's wrath upon the Amalekites, but yet also seeing his all-powerfulness, his omnipotence, and favor and love for Israel. The fact that he showed them favor and love by giving them the victory and his wrath and judgment on the Amalekites because he uh, let Israel defeat them. So you see, these are just a few examples where people have witnessed God's character and attributes in circumstances in their lives. And it happens with us today. We, you know, we'll go through a tribulation, trial, or a season, whatever it is, and we'll see, look back, and we'll see part of God's character and attribute working in our lives as we look back. But the one thing I will say about that is when you go through those uh, experiences, when it comes to experiences, it's always important to interpret experience based upon what the Bible says, not 
your Bible based upon the experience what you had. So you always look, well, I have this experience. What does the Bible actually say about that experience? And that's what you base it upon. So um, one last thing on the introduction is when it comes to God's character and attributes, he's with likes of mercy and love and wrath and um, all-powerfulness. They don't just kind of branch out one at a time. Uh, got a slide, maybe. There you go. So you see here, you've got God not in a box, but in a circle in the middle, and you've got his attributes around, and that's always given a picture that they kind of one at a time slashing out and here, there, and everywhere. That's not the case. Next slide. There you go. A bit confusing, but basically his character and attributes are in that circle, interwoven, interlocked, meaning that each and every single one of his attribute and character is displayed pretty much all the time, every time. You're going to get all of them at once, or every single time. They're not just one here, one there, one there. They're interwoven, interlocked. You can't separate God and his character and attributes, and you can't separate his single character and attribute apart from each other either. They're always together. They come hand in hand. So, with that, let's pray. So, Father, just uh, thank you for this time and day uh, where we have to come together and study your word. And Lord, we just pray that you just reveal to us yourself through the word as we study in you through what your scripture actually says about you, Lord. So, Lord, we just dedicate this time to you and just pray our hearts be open to hear what you have to say to us. And we just know that you reveal yourself to us through your word, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So, we're going to be looking at four key verses in the Bible today. And the first one is found in Revelation chapter 4, verse 8. And funny enough, we sung it just a moment ago. In actual fact, most of the songs what we sung earlier kind of tie in with today, which is absolutely amazing. But Revelation chapter 4, verse 8, where and this attribute, as you clearly see, holiness. So let's read Revelation 4, verse 8. The four living creatures, each having six winds, were full of eyes around and within. And they do not rest day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. So notice the four living creatures. What did they not say? They didn't say love, love, love. They didn't say grace, grace, grace. No, they said, even though God is that, but they said holy, holy, holy. So you could say that. The one character attribute of God that is almost the overarching arching, sorry, attribute is this holiness. Because at the end of the day, if God wasn't holy, then none of his attributes or other characteristics will have that much impact on us. It's because of his holiness um, that is so important and that he is God, which makes him God. So, basically, Christian, well, what is holiness? Holiness is simply set apart, consecrated, or consumed. Uh, uh, sacred which then begs another question well what's God set apart from what's he sacred from or consecrated from it's a good question short answer everything mm-hmm. moving on to the next one <laughs> no. so basically the whole creation in every single imaginable way God is set apart from it and if you think about it let's go a bit sciencey Everyone's here has probably heard of Einstein. And everyone has probably heard of his 
theory of relativity, relativity. There's three main parts to our theory. Space, as in kind of, I assume in the, the physical area we occupy, uh, as well as the space around everything, as well as the space in literally space, but space out there, space here around us, and the space we occupy. Uh, time is another aspect of it, the, the moment we live in. Uh, matter, which I believe is a general name of what everything is made up of, substance. So let's look about God and space. Well, God created space. Uh, you see that in Genesis 1 verse 1. Um, time, once again, God created time back in Genesis. And as we read it, uh, sung earlier, he is the ancient of days. He is the Alpha and Omega, who was, so he's just been, he is right now, and he will be just now in a second. And once again, he was, and now is, and will be. He's all living. Um, Peter kind of tries to explain this in chapter 2, uh, uh, sorry, Second Peter chapter 3, verse 8, uh, which says, But beloved, do not forget this one thing, but Lord, one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Some people think, well, you know, does that mean that time frame is slightly different for us? And if you kind of go down that route, then it means that Jesus is still dead on the cross because we had not reached 3,000 years. Jonas will spent 3,000 years in Betty Fish. doesn't mean that at all. <laughs> Basically means that time means absolutely nothing to God because he created time. How can he create something then be bound by that law? Matter. Um, first, there was no matter, then God created everything out of matter. So, and only a God who has not made matter in the first place can pay, basically create matter, can create substances. And we're all bound by these rules and laws ourselves because we live in space, we live in time, we're made up of matter. But yet, God is apart from that creation. He's outside of that. You see, you don't kind of step into a room and create it. He created the room, then you step into it. And that's what he done with this world, didn't it? Yeah. He created this world and then stepped into this world. So he has to be physically outside of the sphere of space, outside the sphere of time, and outside the sphere of need and matter to even exist, to be able to create those three things. So God is physically separated from this creation, but yet he created it, and then he stepped into it. Amen. But what about the other attributes? How is he set apart in his other attributes? What about justice or judgment? I saw an example of this earlier on today with my two boys. Our view is you break my arm, I'm going to break your neck. You burnt my favorite brick, I'm going to burn down your house. It's pretty much how we go, isn't it? We, we don't want to get equal, we want to go beyond equal. And you see that classic example in kids. They, they never want to go equal. I think my youngest... Um, hit my oldest with a soft toy, so my oldest grabbed as hard as toy he could and hit him with that instead. <laughs> but there you go, that's man. Hence why God said, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. He knew our hearts. He knew we'd always want to go that one step further. But yet when it comes to God's justice and judgment, he is set apart in it because his justice and judgment is true. It's balanced. It's untainted by emotion and sin like ours is. He's always completely justified in every single one of his actions, um, but always righteous, even though we don't always understand it. So in his justice, his judgment, God is set apart from us. His wrath, 
Man's wrath can easily be stirred up. I know mine does on the road over other road users. I'm sure some of you guys could say the same thing. But yet, what does the Bible say about God and his wrath? Psalm 103, verse 8 and 9. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, bowed in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. And 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. God is merciful. He's long-suffering. But yet, he's always righteous in his wrath when he expresses his wrath. And let's face it, we all deserve his wrath. And it's only by his mercy that some of us won't experience it, those of us who put our faith in him. What about love? How's God's love separate from the world's love? What does the world say? I love me, myself, and I. Or sometimes the world will say, you know what, I love you as long as you make me happy. You know, as long as I'm happy and you'll focus on my happiness, then I love you. It's conditional love. What about God's love? Unconditional, sacrificial, a love that we will never be separated from. What about power? Let's face it. What power do we have? (laughs) None. But his power is limitless. His presence is everywhere. His knowledge is perfect in everything and everything. Truth. Well, by nature, we're pretty much liars, aren't we? Whereas his truth is the only truth. Praise the Lord. His peace surpasses all understanding. His mercy is abundance towards us and his grace is amazing. What about his sovereignty? It is unchallengeable and not by anything or anyone. It's unbreakable and incomprehensible. We have a sovereign king at the moment, but yet he'll be replaced one day. And he's not that sovereign, is he? Not compared to the sovereignty of God. Uh, in Exodus 15, 18, the Lord shall reign forever and ever. Can any human being who's ever lived or ever will live compare to God? Can, can, can claim that they have even one of those attributes, let alone all of them, in the same way that God has? No. God is truly set apart from this world in every single way. Exodus 15, 11, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praise, doing wonders? First Samuel 2, 2, No one is, like the ho- is, is holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you, nor is there any rock like you. God is holy because there's literally none like him. He is separate because there is none like him. First uh, Timothy 6, verse 15, 16. Who is blessed and only potent or sovereign, the king of kings, lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in approachable light, whom no man has ever seen or can see, to whom be honour and everlasting power. God is the only sovereign. God is the only king of kings. He is the only lord of lords. He alone is immortal. And he, God alone dwells in such unapproachable light. There is none like him. We could spend months and months more talking about God's holiness. And I'd love to spend more time in it, but I can't. So I'll just give you a few Bible references um, uh, of verses which talk about God and his holiness. So here's a short list, very short list. Uh, Isaiah 57 verse 15 uh, says that God's name is holy. Jeremiah 23, 9 says that God's word is holy. Psalm 47, verse 8 says God's 
throne is holy. Uh, Psalm 89 verse uh, 35 says, God swore by his holiness to fulfill his promises. And Amos 4.2 says, God swore by his holiness, but he will bring his judgment on sinners. Those are just a few verses about his holiness. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And you know what? Because God is so holy and we are so sinners, we are set apart from him, but by the base grace and mercy of God, by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, we are now set apart for him. So, when you consider the holiness of God and consider our own sinfulness, it's truly humbling. It really is humbling. And it gives us an application to consider because we are called to be imitators of God's holiness as well. Leviticus 11.44 For I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore consecrate yourselves and you shall be holy, for I am holy. Neither shall you defy yourselves with anything that creeps on, uh, creeping or creeping things on the earth. And this is also repeated once again in 1 Peter 1 verse 15, 16 in the New Testament. But he... Uh, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because written, be holy for I am holy. We need to live a holy life that is set apart from the sinful ways of this world. And we need to consecrate ourselves and make ourselves a temple of the living God. Because at the end of the day in 1 Corinthians 3.16, did you not know that you are the temple of God? The spirit of God dwells in you. Be holy. For I am holy, says God. And sadly, so many Christians don't fully comprehend that instruction or command. Because it is a command. And so they become unequally yoked with this world. And they don't live their life set apart for the Lord. So, be holy for the Lord your God is holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Amen. Okay, second attribute, love. In 1 John 4, 4 verse 8, we see he who does not love does not go know God. For what? For God is love. So God is love. Because God is holy, his love is also holy. He has a holy love, a love that is set apart from anything else in this world. And you can search and search, but you will not find a comparison of that love in his creation. Not even recent his love of spreadsheets even comes close to comparing. <laughs> not even my love of coffee comes close to comparing either. God's love is set apart from all other types of love. It is unique to him. And we see no other better place to look at God's love than the great love chapter itself in 1 Corinthians 13. And we're going to specifically look in verses 4 to 6, first of all, where we actually see characteristics which are probably more in line with the world. So if you want to turn with me to 1 Corinthians 13, we're going to spend some time in this part. So let's read, first of all, verse 4 to 6. should also be up on the wall there. Um, but love does not envy, love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity. But yet the world and its form of love 
it is envious, it is prideful, it does puff up, it is rude, it is selfish, it provokes, it is essentially evil and nicotine, and, and there's all results of sin in our lives, that sort of love. It's, well, it's a, a life lived void of true love, in essence. But yet, when we read on in that chapter, we see the positive aspects of love. Verse 7 and 8. Um, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Amen. We are serving a holy God. But remember our key verse what we're about love. But he who does not uh, love does not know God, for God is love. So if God is love, then let's reread 1 Corinthians 13 a bit differently. In verse 4, God suffers long and is kind. God does not envy. God does not pray himself. He is not puffed up. God does not behave rudely, does not seek his own. God is not provoked and thinks no evil. God does not rejoice in iniquity, but he rejoices in truth. God bears all things. God believes all things. God hopes all things. God endures all things. God never fails. God is the very epicenter of love. If there was, you know, if you look in the dictionary under the word love, there should be a picture of God. But yeah, it shouldn't because then you'd be creating an image of God. But yeah, imagine if it was a storm. God would be the eye of the storm. If, sorry, love was a storm. God would be the eye of a storm even. That's the picture I was going for. But love was a storm. God would be the eye of that storm because God is love. And let's not forget, love, when we're talking about it, is not an emotion. It's not. It's, a, it's not a feeling. It's an action. It's a verb. It's a doing word. There should be an evidence of that love. I'm like, if I say I love my wife, but yet show no real signs of that, if I'm rude to her, abusive towards her, if I don't, you know, appreciate her, then how do I really truly love her? I, I'm not showing any signs of that love at all. There has to be evidence of that love. Well, where's God's evidence of his love towards us? Where's his love? John three sixteen, one of the most famous verses ever. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He gave himself as a living sacrifice to us. I'm sure that most of the men here today would freely give themselves for their wife, just like God gave himself for his church. And obviously we will because we love our wives and they love us back. But yet, what about God? When did he give himself for us? That's the real question. When did God give himself for us? Romans 5, verse 8 to 10. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. There's no, there's some really big parts in the Bible and this is one of them. But God demonstrates his own love towards us. While we're still sinners, whilst we're enemies of God, he gave himself for us. For we, when we class ourselves as enemies of God, 
then we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Uh, God's love and judgment and chastisement. God loves us in his judgment and chastisement. God's perfect love is poured out through his perfect wrath and vengeance. And especially his chastisement towards us. Proverbs 3, verse 11 to 12. My son, do not despise the chastisement of the Lord, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as the father, the son in whom he delights. So as a parent, you love your child, you correct your child, you chastise him to teach him right and wrong. Um, but yet, I'm kind of like imperfect, sinful father, yet I still do that. How much more a loving God who is perfect in his love will chastise us to show us where we are in error and where we are going wrong. God's judgment, wrath and vengeance are pure, righteous and true without any partiality and always fair. And in his perfect love, God hates sin. In his perfect love, he hates sin. And he, one day he'll judge sinners and pour out his wrath and vengeance on all those who reject him. But yet in all that, God still keeps and acts out of his abundance of love. Only God, who is love, can do that. And let's face it, if it were not for his love, none of us would be here today. Another thing to talk about love, Kevin's already mentioned this last week, about how people will say, oh, we only see about this love and God in the New Testament. Not so. God is love. God has always been love. Even in the Old Testament, he was love then, and today, in the New Testament, he is love. And you see this uh, throughout in the Old Testament. There's a few scriptures here. Um, first of all, in the Old Testament, you see that uh, there is no merit to God's love. In Deuteronomy 7, verse 7, The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any other people, for you were least of all peoples. There God saying, look, I loved Israel because I loved Israel. Not because there was anything special about them. I just love them. His love is not earned by merit. And also we see in Deuteronomy 7 verse 8 about God's love chose us. But because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore <coughs> to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the uh, hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. As well as in the Old Testament, we see that God's love delights in Deuteronomy 10, verse 15, the Lord delighted only in our fathers to love them, and he chose their descendants after them, you above all peoples as it is this day. God loved Israel because he chose Israel. And his love is everlasting. How about Jeremiah 31, verse 3? The Lord has appeared of old to me, saying, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with love and kindness, I have drawn you. And as well as that, in the New Testament, we have the chapter of love. In the Old Testament, you have the book of love. Hosea. Hosea is a book of love. Because if you read it, you see God's pouring out his broken heart upon a nation that has rejected him time and time again. And then, through those judgments, what he casts upon his people in the book of Hosea, he turns around and says to him, you know what? Even though you've rejected me, 
and I've rejected you because of your rejection of me, but one day you will become my people again. And one day I will show mercy on you again. And you read that in Hosea 1 verse 9, 10. Then God said, call his name, as in speaking of Hosea's child, Lo Ami, for you are not my people, and I will not be your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as a sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered, and it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there shall be said to them, you are the sons of the living God. You see that throughout the book of Hosea, where God has poured out judgment upon Israel for their rejection of him. But yet, in amongst those judgments, you see elements of his love saying, but yet, I shall save you, I shall redeem you, I shall be your God once again. God has always been love and always will be love. And you can't separate God from his love no matter what part of the Bible you're in. And nor can you separate us from that love either. Praise the Lord. Romans 8, verse 38, 39. I know, think of Reese who recently covered it. But it says, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor death, nor any other creative thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Neither can your own sins separate you from that love either. So, love God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. Love each other as Christ has loved uh, gave himself for us love because God is love <laughs> moving on to our next attribute God is light God is light and you see this in 1 John verse 1 uh, sorry chapter 1 verse 5 where it says this is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Wow. So God is light. Okay, get that one. And in him is no darkness. Okay, so what is darkness? That's a question. What is darkness? Darkness is nothing. There's, there's no actual substance to darkness. Darkness is just the void of light. Light is the real substance. If you want to create darkness, you, you've got to physically take the light away. That's the only way you could create darkness. So, in that sense, if light is a real substance and darkness is just the absence, then God is the only real substance. He is the only real God. He alone is light. So why is light so important? Well, what does light do? It reveals. It reveals substances. It reveals things. Light reveals that which is hidden in darkness. Because light displaces darkness. And God is light, then what has he displaced? Well, in Ephesians 5.8, If you were once darkness, but now in the light of the Lord, walk as children of the light. So we've been displaced by that light. We were once children of darkness, ruled by the power of sin and, uh, and the, the world, this world. We were in subject to sin's every uh, past and temporary pleasure and fulfillment of this happiness but now we are light we've been displaced from darkness into light because God's light has revealed that darkness in us 
And then and then inside the hearts, then we conf- uh, confessed our sins and repented of our sins. And now we are that children of light, living out never-ending joy. Mm-hmm. And notice that encouragement in the end, walk in light. Mm-hmm. And as Mark always says, walk in spirit as well. Mm-hmm. New light, uh, light displacement. Uh, is also found in Colossians 1 verse 13. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of love. So conveyed is almost transportation. You've been taken from one place and put in a new place. We've been taken out of hopelessness and eternal damnation. We've taken out from hell, uh, where there is no God there, and into heaven, where God will be there, and where we'll be worshipping. We've been taken out of darkness, and the power of darkness and into his marvelous light we've been displaced to god's kingdom you should also see there in colossians 1 13 where it says he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into what the kingdom of the son of his love into the kingdom of the son of his love into jesus's kingdom where he, we who are now of light now live in that kingdom of light. Kingdom of not just light, but a kingdom of light and truth. Because after all, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. His kingdom is light and truth. Because the light reveals truth. Light reveals truth. Uh, Psalm 119, I had to put it in there somewhere. Psalm 119, verse 105. Not quite there yet, but it said, The word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Light reveals truth. God's word reveals the truth and lights our path, lights our way. So that we are no longer in darkness, but walking in that light. Not only that, but talk about light, that God's word is light, but we are also light. Matthew 5, verse 14 16. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. So let your light so shine before men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Since we are now light, let our light so shine, so that they may see Jesus inside of us and know him just as we know him. But note, our light is kind of like the moon's light, if you think about it. Because what light does the moon have? None. The moon just reflects the light of the sun. So the light, what we have inside of us, is just really a reflection of the light of the sun, which is Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ shining in and through us. And then that's what people see in us. It's not our light, it's really his light, because he is light. God shined in uh, his light into his darkened world, just like a mighty lighthouse shining in the darkness. And to reveal the sinful hearts and intents of mankind, to show a better way through his son, Jesus Christ. But we have a responsibility, don't we, with this light. We have a responsibility to respond to the light and if you're here today and you don't know that light then don't follow the same condemnation 
but the Israel Fallen, when Jesus walked upon this earth. In John 3, 19, 21, and this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who has the truth comes to light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. Light came into the darkness, but man preferred his evil darkness. Tragic. So today, choose the light of the world, who stepped down into darkness and bore our sins, so that we can have a great and rich reward and there is a great rich reward for those who are in the light there's a few verses about this reward in john 8 12 then jesus spoke to him again saying i am the light of the world he who follows me shall not walk in darkness <coughs> but have everlasting light at first peter 2 9 but you are children a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that ye may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For if it was the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We have been given light of life we have been given eternal life when you accept that light of the world you get given the gift of eternal life an everlasting life before the throne of light we've been made in priests a royal priesthood as well to represent the god of light that we may praise and worship him for all eternity that we also may deepen our knowledge deepen our knowledge of great God's great glorious light but God's glorious light never changes and never fails and never turns away James 1 verse 17 every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow turning think about it when it's our night time does the sun turn away from us so that we're in darkness? No, the sun stays in the same place, so we're shining. It's the earth that turns away and faces away from the sun. In the same way, when it feels like God's light isn't shining on us, it's not God who's turned his face away, so he's not shining on us. He's always shining. It's us who turned our face away from him. So let's not turn our face away from God, but let us experience those good gifts and receive those good gifts when we face his marvellous light. God's light is always shining bright like a lighthouse. It's constant, never-ending, never-stopping. It's always shining, and nothing can ever stop it from shining either. Nothing has the power or authority to stop God's light from ever shining. <clears throat> John 1 verse 5, And the light shines in darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. But that word comprehend it can also be overcome it. Nothing can overcome the light of God that shines in and through us. Even darkness has no power. <clears throat> Psalm 139 verse 12. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as day. The darkness and the light are both alike 
to you. So walk in the light of God. Let him shine through you so that others may see that light and know him just as you know him. So that they may be glorifying God forever and ever just along with us. So God is light. And then there is one last um, attribute what we're going to look at, and that is uh, spirit. Spirit. In John 4, verse 24, we read, God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship him in the spirit and in truth. So, remember at the beginning we talked about our physical limitations through space, time, matter. Well, because God is spirit, he's not bound by any of those three limitations as we spoke earlier. Whereas we are, because we're physical flesh, we are made of flesh and blood, and we are bound by the space we occupy, we are bound by the time frame in which we live in, we are bound by the matter that makes us in his body. And if you think about it, even angels kind of face similar limitations, maybe not the time, but certainly probably uh, by, um, by the matter what they made out of and the space what they occupy. They can't be ever at the same time. Only God can occupy any part of space at any time. And we see that because in his omnipresence. So Jeremiah 23, verse 23, 24. I am a God near at hand, says the Lord, and not a God afar off. I, uh, can anyone hide his face in secret places? So I shall not see him, says the Lord. Do I not feel heaven and earth, says the Lord? God feels the whole heaven and earth. His presence is everywhere. Not even air can claim that. I mean, like, air covers, yep, the vast majority of the surface of the earth, but you go out of space, there's not much air out there. You go underground, there's not much air down there either. God is the only one who can claim he is everywhere you go. Go to the moon and be there. God is absolutely everywhere. And you see this again in another psalm, Psalm 139, verse 7 to 12. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If only Jonah renewed this psalm. If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the utmost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light, uh, light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. There is nowhere to hide from God. God is everywhere at every moment. He's everywhere in every second, exact same time. It's hard to understand, confused, me too. And I love the song we were sang earlier, Ancient of Days, Ancient of Days. And but, uh, Daniel chapter 7 verse 9 is where that phrase came, comes from, which says, I watched till the thrones were put in place the ancient days was seated meaning god has always been and uh, through every second that has ever existed and every second that will exist god has been there a new testament way of saying this is found in first timothy 1 17 
which says, Now to the king eternal, <coughs> immortal, invisible, to God alone is wise, be honor, glory forever and ever. Amen. And that phrase, king eternal, can also be king of ages. He is the king of ages, the ancient of days. Which means that God is also immortal, never-ending. Hence, Revelation 1.8, I am the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Lord Almighty, the great I am, the first and the last, there was no begin who was there at the beginning, who is going to be there at the end, and all in the middle as well. He is the Ancient of Days, the King of Ages. Second uh, Peter three eight, my beloved, do not forget this one thing: that with the Lord, as we read earlier, one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. As we said earlier, time has no impact upon God, because God created time itself. How about His omnipotence? God is all powerful, because He is Spirit. There is no limitations to His power. Uh, we see first example of his great power in Genesis 1. How can anyone create this whole universe just by speaking it? And like that takes phenomenal power. And like he brought matter into existence with just speech. How can you create everything out of nothing? I don't know. You always got to have something to create something out of. Not God. He's more powerful than that. And our brains can truly not comprehend fully that power we just believe it because the bible tells us so uh, jeremiah thirty-two seventeen, our lord behold you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and an outstretched arm there's nothing too hard for you there's nothing too hard for god he can do abundantly above of all that we can ask or think in Ephesians 3, 20, 21. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we ask or think according to the power that works in us. Wow. Can you imagine it? God can do more than what you can imagine. If your imagination is so far from the mark of what God is able and capable of doing. But just notice that same power is in us that same power is in us we have that same power working in us but by no means or shape or means do we have that same authority behind that power you see only God himself has that authority a wise man once said with great power comes great responsibility yeah but the bible shows us with great power comes great authority and God has the power and the authority. So where do we see signs and examples of God's power and authority, especially his sovereignty and harmony with one another? We see that in Daniel chapter 2, verse 21, where it says, And he changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings and gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. God has the power and authority to raise up and nations and wipe out nations as he chooses and when he chooses. How about death? Does God have power and authority over death? Sure does. Revelation 20, 14. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. 
This is the second death. God has the power and authority to take death itself and cast it away forever into the lake of fire. Uh, which uh, where 1 Corinthians 15, 26 says the last enemy that will be destroyed is death and it will be destroyed by the power of God. Um, God has power and authority over Satan. We read that, uh, learn that a lot from the book of Job where Satan himself comes and presents himself to God. <clears throat> but yet we see there God is greater than Satan because God says, okay, Satan, you see my servant Job? He's like, yeah, I see you. No, I can't touch him because of you. God's like, okay, you could do so much, but that's it. Satan is bound by the word of God. There are boundaries set in place and Satan cannot pass him. It's impossible for him to pass those boundaries because God has set him. God has power and authority over Satan. And a few verses where I love expresses power is found in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19 to 21. Uh, Paul actually uses three different Greek words to express God's power. Uh, let's read those verses. Uh, verse 19. Uh, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in which is to come. So the first word of power you see there is in verse 19, where it's dynamicus, um, which is supernatural being who has administrative power. Uh, carrying on verse 19 says, Toward us who believe according to the working of his power, mighty power, which is, that second power is ischius, um, which means strength and power. Uh, verse 21, this is the third uh, power word, says, far above all principalities, which means rule, um, and power, and this word power means authority, um, the right to control or govern. And then as it carries on, um, uh, power and might, and that word might, once again, is dynamicus. So he uses that word twice. So he's got three different words, but he uses dynamicus twice which once again remains supernatural being who has his ministry of power. I just love the fact that when Paul's trying to describe God's power, he uses three separate Greek words to try and describe it. And all I can truly do is just shout power three times. Power, power, power. <laughs> this, this is the only word I got to use it. God is powerful. Omnis, uh, I always can never pronounce this one. Omniscience, omniscience. God is all-knowing. So being spirit, God does not have to learn. God did not have a tutor or someone there to show him the ropes. He didn't have a counselor. He knew all things. First uh, John 3.20, For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart who knows all things. I know in context this verse is talking about not condemning our hearts, but at the end, who knows all things still remains the same he knows all things god has to have perfect knowledge about everything god knows everything about everything because he created everything <coughs> if you think about it god gave man the knowledge to create everything that we have today god gave him a man knowledge to take mud out of the ground bake it 
to use it for bricks. God gave him a na- uh, man of knowledge to take those little grains of wheat to crush him and to bake him to make bread and cookies. God gave that man that knowledge. God gave the man knowledge to dig in the ground and find random shiny materials to make tools and weapons out of. God gave man that knowledge. God gave man knowledge. But yet, God's knowledge is not limited to what we know. It surpasses our understanding. We see that in Isaiah 55, 8, 9. My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor my ways your ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God's thoughts and ways are always higher than we could ever possibly comprehend or think, which truly makes him set apart and holy. Paul speaks of the same thing in this letter to the Romans. Romans 11, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the richness, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable is his judgments and his ways past finding out. The great riches and depth to the wisdom and knowledge of God, they are unsearchable. Way past our grasp and reach in this life, and possibly even in life to come, are we ever fully can truly know and comprehend God? <clears throat> Probably not. We'll just scratch the surface of knowing him. But yet, his knowledge of us is incomprehensible in his own right. Unlike we can only guesstimate. So you've got estimate, which is where you make an accurate estimation. Guesstimate is pretty much just sheer guesswork. We can only guesstimate as to the amount of hairs we got on our head. God knows the exact number of hairs on our head. Matthew 10, 30, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered by God. God knows how many hairs. But yet, God's knowledge of us goes more intimate than just the amount of hairs on our head. <clears throat> His intimate knowledge of us, we see once again in Psalm of Creighton a lot, Psalm 139, verse 1-4. to O Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thoughts are far off. You comprehended my path and my laying down, and I acquainted of all my ways. For there is not a word in my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. He has searched our deepest being. He knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows our daily business. He knows our daily lives and our routines. God knows and understands our thoughts long before our grandparents were even born. God knows our habits, our likes, our dislikes, our struggles and failures, and all the ones what we don't even know about ourselves. God already knows them. God knows every word that we ever say, and with intimate knowledge, God has knows each and every single one of us more than we can ever know ourselves. He's truly our Father in heaven, who knows everything about us, us, but yet still loved us. He knew everything about us, but yet still loved us. Loved us enough to give us us himself for us, that we may become his precious children. God is all-powerful. God is all-present. He lights everything, everywhere. He is absolute truth and does not change. God is the very object of grace and mercy, peace and love. He's completely sovereign and is just in all his ways. He is perfect in love, set apart where is none like him. I wish I could describe them to you, but it's indescribable. Yeah.
and uncomprehensible. Amen. Amen. Father, we just thank you that you are a mighty God, living and powerful, and that we truly can't put you in a box because there are so rich depths to you, Father. Father, all we can do is just submit ourselves onto your attributes and character. And Father, we praise we live our lives. We just see you in every aspect and area of our lives as we just live our lives for you, to honor you, to glory you and worship you, Father. And Father, we thank you that you express those attributes to us in our everyday lives and that you do not hold back from us, but yet you give liberty. And Father, we thank you we can truly know you and Father, we just look forward to that day when we stand before your throne in heaven and just worship you for all eternity. We praise you and love you in Jesus' name. Amen.